Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good to see everyone here that's over the age of 40 that can get up early for things. Those of us that are over the age of 50 each morning is, okay, there's another one done. Good, we're good, okay. But uh, those of you that are under that age is thinking, oh, why do I have to get up? Those of us that are over 50 are like, I get to get up. You know, <laughs> so. And that's kind of the way we, it would be interesting if we, we lived our lives that way, if we were able to, um, if we were able to think about how we all used to think in the way that we lived. And the way that we lived was thinking about the next opportunity and the next thing we were going to do with our lives and what we were going to do with our kids or maybe your grandkids and, or maybe what you're going to be doing with your career or maybe a, a new idea that you created or something else that was going to really be that next innovation. Maybe you were thinking about how you're going to be investing your money. Maybe how you're going to exponentially increase that money. Or maybe you're someone who's more concerned about the propagation of the faith and what different ways that you could actually reach more people for the Lord. Well, the funny thing is, is that one of the things that's kind of a universal is that religion has been a way to reach and control people for years. And in many ways, that's what Christ came to abolish, was the performance standard. See, the thing is, with the performance standard, you can actually start to make people do things out of the thought that they are being more virtuous, or that in some ways they're doing more things to improve their station with God by their actions, by their obedience. So that becomes the main thing that you do. So if you're going to start to transition a people into a brave new world, and how many of you have read Brave New World? And many times people are talking about the fact that between Huxley and Orwell, that's really where you find your truth. And I think that's, that's pretty accurate. Somewhere between Huxley and Orwell is where we're going. But if you're going to have a brave new world, you need a brave new religion. A brave new religion that actually helps to guide your steps, almost as guideposts, into a new way that you begin to understand the way that life makes sense. See, because you've been looking through lenses that you've had on since the day that you were born. And in many ways, there were lenses that were shaped by your parents, by your grandparents, by your great-grandparents, by civilization that is around you, by society that is around you. But then also, and this is one of the wonderful things about the Enlightenment, I, I don't want to completely trash the Enlightenment, as many Christians do, is that... Objective reality was one of the wonderful things about sharpening your, your lenses. To not just live in an age of mythos. But see, when you live in an age where you are not guided by objective truth, either by the reality that's around you, or if you're a Christian, by the scriptures themselves. Well, this is what the scriptures say. This is what the scriptures say within context. If you bring in new lenses that somehow get past that understanding of grace and salvation through Christ alone, through in faith alone, and then all of a sudden you start moving more into the performance standard. Well, we're having bad weather. 
So we need to sacrifice a virgin to the volcano god. That's the performance standard because the gods are angry. And if we do these things, then hopefully it will change our outcome. Well, the problem is, is that we're actually going to a point where, if you understand the Judeo-Christian principle of things, that we were made, the Imago Dei is we were made in the image of God. Well, the clever man, the man that would like to be in, in the control seat of what happens in a new religion, would like to make God in his own image. The right kind of God. Because we're going to do things right this time. So you need a brave new religion. Now this is nothing new, of course. This is nothing that is new to any of us. It shouldn't be. And if you're a Christian, or even if you're a non-Christian, you probably read about these things that happened centuries and centuries ago. From the book of Daniel, it says this. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar had made an image of gold and he set it up in Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. It should be noted that since the beginning of time, since the creation of earth and its inhabitants, that as soon as a tyrant takes over control of a tribe, takes control over a region, takes control over another civilization or a nation, they will 
immediately do a few things. They'll demand a few things. They will demand property, obedience, and worship. They will insist that what possessions you have, what positions that your family has, what positions that the Lord has given you as you navigate the world and care for your family, that those possessions are theirs, actually. But, as a very wise man had said to me, who really had all the possessions that he had desired, and this was back in 2009, and basically he was a man whose company we had served that was Sovereign Alliance with my wife and Kathy, and he had a financial services institution that did really well, and we served him. Boy, we would, we would be able to do big conventions and events, and he would take all of his best salespeople out on a cruise where you'd have 200 cabins and the best cabins on the ship, and we would be able to do all sorts of crazy things to really reward those people that did what they did for the company. And Mark had a fantastic company. He was a mentor to me. He was a brother in the Lord, too. So he had a home in Colorado, I think in Aspen or Vail. He had a, he had a beautiful condo on the beach. He had another home that was on the water in Tampa. He had a luxury suite in uh, Raymond James Stadium so he could watch the Bucks games and other events that they had there at Raymond James. Basically, he had everything, the boats, the cars, everything that you would really want in terms of stuff. And then 2008 came, and it was taken from him. And I, I never will forget, I was coming back from an event that we had just run. I said, well, hey, let's meet Mark, uh, where we usually do at the Center Club, the Student Executive Club in Tampa. He said, yeah, sure. So I'm pulling up in the parking lot, and I see this other, instead of this usual, I think it was an E-Class Mercedes that would usually drive up, I see this, like, 2002 Nissan Xterra pull up. Okay. I'm getting out. See Mark get out of his car. I said, oh, hey, you driving your son's car? He's like, no, that's my car. I said, what happened to your Mercedes? Well, that's not me anymore. Not right now. I said, oh, man. Mark, I'm so sorry about that. I mean, I didn't know it was so tough. He goes, yeah, it's tough. It's just stuff. That stuff doesn't make me. That doesn't say who I am. It's all just stuff. I can get it back someday because it doesn't identify who I am. Yeah, I sold two of the properties. I got rid of all that other stuff. It's got to get lean right now. We just had the big crash in 2008. Got Obama in the White House. Things are going to be tough. And that's the mindset that many of us have to have. So if it was just stuff that they were after, though, this time around, 12 years later, if it was just things that are temporal that they were after, you know, that would be one thing. But it isn't. 
Because now, they also require your obedience. You need to fall down and worship the image that has been set up before you. And not just your obedience to a certain amount of new rules and regulations that our new tyrants are going to be setting up. Not just what you do, but what you think, what you say. Total obedience, mind, body, and soul. Which brings us to the ultimate demand of worship. Complete and total worship. The kind of worship that most evangelicals are not familiar with. The kind of worship that demands that every bit of obedience that you have mustered must be directed towards their glory, to their power, to their vision of the future. And that all of your possessions that you have, all of your obedience collectively, must be pointed towards and focused upon their eschatological vision of their utopia, as James has been talking about, immunitizing the eschaton, but not through an individual trust and obedience to God, where we're lowering ourselves, not through the autonomous actions of individuals who love the Lord thy God with all their heart, mind, and soul. No, this is the creating of a God in their own image, the creation of God in the image of man. In essence, we are now in the process, not us, but others, and even those in the evangelical community, in the Catholic Church, moderate Muslims and Buddhists and others, they are becoming the God-makers. Not the lowering of man through the bondage of will in relation to God and his sovereignty and omnipotence, lowering ourselves, honoring God, but the refusal of God. You see, the church itself, in the radical revolutionary's eyes, needs its own cultural revolution. Out with the old God. Out with the God who molded and created the Holy Scriptures that serve as our authority and guide. And in with the new artificial God of our own making. The God made of human hands and made of human sin, the created man-fashioned God that will seek to steal all of the attributes that only the creator and sustainer of the universe himself intrinsically possesses. A God, an artificial God, who is all-knowing. An artificial God of man who is all-knowing. The new artificial God of man must be omniscient. The new God of man must be all-knowing of all things at all times. The new God of man must know your heart rate at all times, your temperature at all times, your general health condition at all times. The new God of man must know what you are reading at all times, what you are watching at all times. They must know what you are saying at all times. The new God must know what you are thinking at all times. As a matter of fact, 
the new artificial God of man, will be able to replace your bad thoughts, the thoughts that you should not be thinking, with the new thoughts approved by the God created by human hands. The new God must know where you are at all times because the new God is omnipresent. The new God must know where you are constantly. And the new city of the new God is the central city, the gentrificated city, the center city that eliminates all suburban living. Because the new city of the new God is not really a city. It is a panopticon. What's a panopticon? A panopticon is an institutional building where people are kept under inspection, whether under a hospital, a school, public housing, a factory, a mental health institution. But the most famous application is that of a prison. The essence, the essence of the panopticon is that of central inspection. The panopticon is a disciplinary concept brought to life in the form of a central observation tower placed within a circle of prison cells. From the tower, a guard can see every cell and inmate, but the inmates can't see into the tower. Prisoners will never know whether or not they are being watched. The new city, the new city of the artificial God is a prison. That is what is being created. Now, of course what you want to say is, for you to be able to step in this prison, what they don't want to do is to put guns at your back or in the back of your head to make you go in by force. Because if you do that, there might be enough people that say, we're not doing that, and might turn around on those that would seek to be their masters. So you might have a problem. So what you need to do is what? Let's go back to the first presentation that I gave. Fear and vulnerability, there is a crisis. And this crisis arrests us and we have an opportunity right now to push you all into the prison cells and to make you act and do and think in the way that we say that you must act and think and do things. For example, how many of you are familiar with Mr. Klaus Schwab? At this pivotal moment, I see several priorities for the global agenda. We must continue to fight against the global pandemic. We must revitalize the global economy and accelerate its transition to accelerate net zero. Accelerate the contradictions. We must preserve biodiversity by deploying nature-based solutions, and we must narrow the gap between the rich and the poor to achieve more sustainable Equity. global development. Sustainable developable development goal development. Yes, that's sustainable development for our globe. 
So you are in the midst of a change from an analog world, a physical, real, objective world of real things. You are being transitioned into a digital world. And remember, uh, it was a Mel Brooks movie about space. I can't say the name of the movie. <laughs> he says, in the future, nothing works, right? Well, same thing with our digital things here. So as I transition into a digital world, some things don't work, you know, even though it really adds to the presentation. But that's the case, is what you have is a transition into a digital world. So if you're going into a digital world, what you need is a new world religion. A new religion. Not a religion that basically set up where we are today in terms of our own responsibility and the work that we have to do. But we also need a religion that is formed by the systems that we all must be transitioned into. So if the new system that is coming for all of us is a system that differs from the system that we had before, the new religion must be molded in the shape of the new system. Antonio Gramsci said this. And Antonio Gramsci was, of course, the one who really brought in the concepts of cultural Marxism. I mean, the Fabians as well thought of these ideas too. But he said that socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. In the new order, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration, capturing via infiltration, of schools, universities, churches, and the media by transforming the consciousness of society. So this was back in the 1920s that he wrote this, because he saw that it couldn't just be an economic revolution, that there were things that and systems that meant something to people in their lives. It wasn't just a question of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. It was other things that made up people's lives. So what you had to do is you had to take those same Marxian concepts and break up what that hegemony was with a counter hegemony. But you couldn't do it from the outside breaking it. You had to do it from the inside out, making sure that you, what does he say? infiltrate, get your people into power, into control, to then change those institutions from the inside out. Now, it wasn't just him. I just mentioned the Fabians as well. It's an example. H.G. Wells. You might just know him from science fiction and so forth. Oh, you need to read a lot more H.G. Wells, who was encouraging this transition into scientific socialism. He says, the character of the open conspiracy, and what I mean, what he meant by that is, oh, there's something going on. Oh, yeah, there is. And we're out in the open about it. We're going to write about it. We're going to have conferences about it. We're going to be talking about it. And you're not going to do anything about it because you won't even bother to read it. You're going to be caught up in popular culture. You're going to have the majority of people in the world that know more about what's going on with um, the actors. The, uh, Amanda Heard and Johnny Depp, right. You mean we're wrapped up in their trial than you are about what's actually happening to you in your lives. So the open conspiracy, and what he says is the movement towards a world collective, will now be plainly displayed. It'll be out in the open. It will have become a great world movement. 
as widespread and evident as socialism or communism. It will largely have taken the place of these movements. It will be more. It will be a world religion. So we're not just talking about what we were talking about before in terms of the, the health issues, right? The health crisis that everybody was reflexively brought into, or necessarily about just critical race theory that everybody was brought into. But you're also talking about other things too, like environmentalism, a new God. But there must be justice. And that's why you will hear terms now like environmental justice, climate justice. So all of a sudden you say, hold on, I thought this was about racial justice and social justice. Oh yeah, climate justice and environmental justice too. Because it's all part of the same thing. It's all part of a world religion. So again, the cultural revolution of the four olds is the old ideas, the old customs, the old culture, the old habits must be out and must be brought in with the new religion. Now, when you're thinking with the new religion, you're thinking, well, Mike, look, there's nothing anybody can do that could affect the way I think. They can't get inside of my head and tell me what to believe. And if you're someone who's a reformed evangelical Christian, you would say, well, I have the imputation of the Holy Spirit within me. And that as well informs me, guides me, and seals me. If you're a Roman Catholic, you say, well, I'm infused with justification, with the Holy Spirit, and so forth. Well, they have an answer for that, too. This is Klaus Schwab and the co-founder of Google, at last year's Davos World Economic Forum. Advancing very fast. But can you imagine that in 10 years when we are sitting here, we have an implant in our uh, brains, and um, I can immediately feel, because you all will have implants, I can, and we measure your, your brain waves, and I can immediately tell you how the people react, or I can feel, uh, how the people react um, to your answers, uh, is it imaginable? Um, I, I think that is imaginable. I think, um, I, I think, you know, you can imagine that. You can imagine, well, you're going to be sort of transplanted into, you know, the, the internet, so to speak, to live forever in a digital realm. Uh, you know, you can imagine that you know, you just in your biological incarnation are going to live to be some, you know, very long age. Uh... So what happens here, if you've noticed, is Klaus Schwab, he starts talking. He starts just spilling the beans about what their plans are in the next eight to nine years. So in 10 years from now, I have my implant, you have your implants, I can see how you're thinking about things, we can see how we're reacting to one another, because we all have implants now, you see? And can you imagine that being in, in surgery, Brynn, they go to him and he goes, um, and he's thinking, you just said too much, you just said too much. I imagine that's imaginable. Uh, let's dial that back a bit and so forth. But Klaus Schwab, he wants this and he wants it now. This is his vision that he wants to make sure that happens. You have to start wondering, where did Klaus Schwab get visions like this? Where did he start imagining things like this? Well, this is one of the logistics wheels that you can find at the World Economic Forum. In the center, you will see 
the Great Reset. And surrounding the Great Reset, here are the main things that are, they are concerned about making sure that they can shape for the future, that they can change immediately, shaking, shaping the economic recovery. In other words, we just broke your economy. Now we need to shape it into something new. We need to remold it. Harnessing the fourth industrial revolution. We'll talk about that in just a moment. We'll explain what that means. Strengthening regional development. Hmm. So you're strengthening regional development as opposed to national development. So what you're doing is basically creating a feudal system. Revitalizing global cooperation. So now we're going back to the macro now. We're saying that global cooperation has to take place. Well, in other words, that everybody has to get along. Let's drop this whole idea about sovereignty. Restoring the health, the health of the environment. Because you see, we've done nothing but destroy the environment. We haven't been doing anything good. So what we need to do is employ ESG and make sure everybody else does too. Developing sustainable business models. Well, what does that mean? Redesigning social contracts, skills, and jobs. Okay, so here's where you have the Great Reset. Well, what is the fourth industrial revolution? What it really is, is a global simulacra. So, in other words, you're trying to create a new simulation. Well, how do you go about that? Let's go back to something that we learned about on the first day through critical race theory. Let's just go down to the bottom, because this is the clearest way to say it from Dr. Lindsay. Just call everything racist until you control it. Okay? Call everything patriarchal until you control it. Call everything homophobic until you control it. Demand in the month of June that everyone must bow down to the golden image that we created, the rainbow image that we created. And you all must give penance to the new rainbow image God that we have set up before you. Whenever you hear the harp or the trigon or the lyre, you must bow down and give offerings to the new God that we have created. So how do you get to this point? How is it that somebody is actually thinking through these things? Do you think that this is just within the last five to ten years? They thought, yeah, let's give this a shot. Let's just really put together the worst ideas that we all have. Let's do it all at once, right? Maybe you're thinking that. Oh, no. Let's go back. Let's go back, let's say, 52 years. The big new Brzezinski is Mika Brzezinski's father. He passed away a few years ago. He uh, was trained along with a man named Klaus Schwab. Uh, they were also with Henry Kissinger at the time. He also served as our director of national intelligence for the Carter administration. And this is what he said in 1970 in his book, The Technocratic Era. Technotronic Era, excuse me. Quote, the technotronic era involves the gradual appearance of a more controlled society. Such a society would be dominated by an elite unrestrained by traditional values, those things that you're fighting for. Soon it will be possible to assert almost continuous surveillance over every citizen and maintain up-to-date complete files containing even the most personal information about the citizen. These files will be subject to instantaneous retrieval by the authorities. That's Mr. Brzezinski. 
Between Two Ages, America's Role in the Technotronic Era. First edition, 1970. So for you, and again, we'll talk about some of the things we said in the first session here again, is that you probably think a few weeks ahead or maybe a few months ahead. As things are becoming more chaotic, maybe it's just a couple months, right? So we try to do events or conferences or something like that. It's kind of hard for us to say, a year out, come, be at our conference. And you're thinking, gas will be $15 a gallon by then. <laughs> you, know, you know, a package of chicken will be 40 bucks. I might not be able to do it. So it's hard because we're in an age right now where things are changing so rapidly, but the things that Zbigniew Brzezinski was saying in 1970 was basically future casting. Remember we talk about how the whole principles, the principles of alchemy work, is that you think ahead and you plan ahead and you create. You think about what something should be and you make that something that should be the thing that is. It is the becoming as opposed to the being. But we don't think that way, but we need to start thinking that way about the way that we actually want society to be and stop basically putting it on autopilot and letting somebody else take the wheel. It's time for us to do that, folks. So they talk about this thing, the fourth industrial revolution. This is one of the things that I first started talking about really back in 2015 and 2016, but it was hard to kind of describe it to folks. So let me just give you a simple understanding of that. Let's walk through that here quickly. How do we get to the fourth industrial revolution? And you may be thinking to yourself, well, what happened in the first three? Let's talk about that. The first industrial revolution is basically the idea that you're coming away from an agricultural society. You're going into a society that has steam engines and steam power. The mechanization of production, steam power locomotives and steam powered ships. So instead of just by the wind blows, I hope we have good wind. We have steam that's powering our ships now to take us to the destination we want to go, regardless of the wind around us. We have locomotives that are pulling goods and supplies and services. They're pulling people from one place to another, and they don't need healthy horses to get there. They need coal for firing. They need water and steam and hydraulics to be able to get us there. Industrial, industrialization during this period led to urbanization and better living, conditions for the middle class and upper class. So in other words, you didn't just have the centralized cities like London or Edinburgh or Berlin. You started to have people that lived out further that could train in. So we weren't just centralized in our cities. Now, this did caused something else to happen. Remember, this is post-Rousseau and so forth. We've then started to come through this age of, of what was the great revolutions, both the French Revolution and the American Revolution, which, was, which stuck, at least for a little while. But you're coming into an age now of greater and quicker exploration and development. Second Industrial Revolution, the discovery of electricity in the assembly line production system the leap of 60% of the Western world out of poverty. Because now things are more accessible. Things are being built. Jobs are needed then. If you're going to start making things and building things, you need people to do those things, right? So all of a sudden, people have a part of that. Well, capitalism's a wonderful thing to help with that. The transportation connectivity from urban industrialization out to rural. The discovery and use of electricity, as we already said, communication with radio and telephone. So now all of a sudden, 
You can pick up the phone and call your distant relatives that moved to a different place. You didn't have to write a letter and hope that it got there two weeks later. You can say, hey, happy birthday, how are you? You can call up the phone, hey, bad news, something's happening with so-and-so's health. So all of a sudden you had instant communication. Third industrial revolution. Now we're coming into basically our lifetimes. The age of personal electronics and computers. Extreme poverty is now limited. City centers are somewhat emptied out. And the rise of the suburbs, where people want to live. The age of the internet and the information age. The age of the smartphone, your personal automaton. Third age of policing, DNA, digital, and video evidence. So now you're coming into a new age of policing. It isn't just what somebody's testimony was. Was it corroborated by how many other people, what was said? Now you're getting into, oh, well, we have your digital footprint. We know exactly where you were. Oh, well, we have DNA evidence that you left behind. We found you at the scene. Didn't matter if anybody saw you or not. Well, actually, we have surveillance that picked you up. Actually, we have exactly what you said because you had your phone on. Oh, you weren't making a phone call? We still heard what you said anyway. Matter of fact, we also picked it up through the TV. So all of a sudden, you're reaching another age where you're starting to transition into the panopticon. Now, this has not been something that is just new that just happened yesterday. It started really with the book The Great Reset by Richard Florida, which was written in 2008, published in 2009. So Richard Florida is the one that came up with the ideas of gentrification, how to move people out of suburbs, back into cities, but also said what we really need is we need right now for us to jump into this new era, we need to have something that is almost like the effects of what the world wars did to Europe or did to Japan, where they demolished everything, and we had to rebuild. But what we want to do this time is we want to kind of demolish everything in terms of our systems, keep the infrastructure, keep the things that we build in this time of peace, and build on top of that. Wouldn't that be great? So we can take whatever was created during the capitalistic economy where everything works, and now we can grift off that and build our crazy ideas. And in essence, that's what they've done. It's a giant grift. So then you have, of course, Klaus Schwab, COVID-19 and the Great Reset, which was published, I believe, in June of 2020. So written pretty quickly, if you will. Somewhat prescient. Uh, I first started talking about the Great Reset back in 2018, and then further, further tried to explain that it was here now in the summer of 2020 as he was writing this book with people calling me a conspiracy theorist. And nobody else was talking about it at the time. Got receipts. Then of course, Time Magazine comes out with the Great Reset because they're thinking that all of our marketing is working and we're just gonna talk about the Great Reset and how we just need, this is our opportunity to rebuild everything after COVID. They didn't expect you and me and everybody else to go, ah, eh, eh, we see what you're doing. Well, 
unlike the first three industrial revolutions, we're talking about technological process that are helping human beings to live better lives, to be more prosperous, moving society along. Really, the fourth industrial revolution is fundamentally different. The fourth industrial revolution isn't just about changing the way we do things. It's about changing you. So it's not just about getting better electronics. It's not just about a better class of living or better transportation to get you and me from here to there. It's about changing you. So before we get into the what, the what of the fourth industrial revolution, let's go ahead and talk about the how and why. Well, how do we get there? One thing that is consistent, I think, that you've heard from myself and Dr. Lindsay uh, over the past two days is that basically what? We're living in a fake world. The things that you're telling you are not so. And the things that you're te they're telling you you must accept are things that don't have any resemblance to reality, right? Everything is subjective. Well, how do you get there? Why is that happening? Why are we in this pattern? Let's talk about simulacra and simulation. James touched on this a little bit yesterday, talking about Baudrillard. And simulacrum means likeness, semblance. Something that has the likeness of something, but is not. Simulation is the imitation of the operation of a real-world process or system over time. Now, this is very detailed. I'm going to go over this briefly. Please feel free to take a picture of it. Simulacra and simulation. Well, the first stage of making our way to full simulacrum is the first stage is a faithful image or copy where we believe, and it may be correct, that a sign, a reflection of a profound reality. This is a good appearance. It's what Baudrillard called the sacramental order. The second stage in our way to simulacrum is a perversion of reality. This is where we come to believe the sign to be an unfaithful copy, which masks reality as an evil appearance. It is the order of malfeasance. The third stage now masks the absence of a profound reality, where the sign pretends to be a faithful copy, but is a copy with no actual original. Signs and images claim to be, represent something real, but no representation is taking place. And arbitrary images are merely suggested as things which they have no relationship to. Baudrillard calls this the order of sorcery. The fourth stage is pure simulacrum, in which the simulacrum has no relationship to any reality whatsoever. Here, signs merely reflect other signs, and any claim to reality on the part or images or signs is only of the order of the other such claims. This is a regime of total equivalency, where cultural products need no longer even pretend to be real in a naive sense, because the experiences of consumers' lives are so pre predominantly artificial that even claims to reality are expected to be phrased in artificial, hyper-real terms. <coughs> One of the best examples that I can give you in story form because we're looking for some narratives, too. 
It's an example that was first provided by a friend that both myself and, and Dr. Lindsay have. And then as well, James has been able to articulate this many times. It's the example of a strawberry. Now you might be going, oh, okay, well, that's kind of silly. Let me tell you the story. Let's put on our thinking caps again. Imagine, imagine that you are going back 70 years ago. And there's a grandfather who, since around the 1900s and his father before him, what they decided to do was to get a bunch of land. And what they were really good at was farming. And the thing that he knew that they could really start to cash in on was if they made really good strawberries. So they planted fields and fields and fields of strawberries. And the family strawberries were known throughout the region. Well, this grandfatherly old man, 70 years ago, takes his young grandson and says, son, you want to go out with me? Let's go pick a fresh strawberry out of our fields. He says, okay, granddad, let's do that. So they get in the old pickup truck on a dusty road, just as the sun is going down. The golden sun is filtering through the trees, over the groves. They come out, step out of the pickup truck, and he bends down, picks a fresh strawberry. He says, grandson, you're now going to taste one of the greatest things you'll ever taste in your life. Grandson takes that strawberry, bites into it, and goes, oh, wow, grandfather, that's amazing. Goes, that's what our family does, grandson. Grandson gets a little bit older. He continues to work on the family farms. Takes pride in what the family is doing. They're known all over the region for their strawberries. Goes to school, gets his degree from a new fancy college. Starts to learn about marketing, how to do things, how to run a business. Grandfather passes away. The father isn't as excited about the strawberries, but the grandson is. So as the grandson graduates college, he says, look, we're going to bring the right tools, the right materials, and the right thinking to our family business because I want everybody to have an opportunity to try our strawberries. So he starts marketing the strawberries. All of a sudden, all over the region, that's the only strawberry that you eat, and they are fantastic. Well, sooner or later, within the state, there's a distribution company that says, hey, look, um, we tasted your strawberries. They are the best in the state. We really believe that we'd like to be able to get them to everywhere in the state. But one thing that we should probably try to do is we should probably try to take that strawberry, let's make it into jam and preserves. Okay, well, that sounds good. Yeah, we'll retain the same strawberry, and we'll put the picture of the family strawberry out in the front of the jar and we'll call it whatever the name of the, the family is. That sounds really good to me. And we're gonna to need to buy more land to grow more strawberries now. And all of a sudden, and they go through the first stage on their way to simulacrum. They then have the strawberry jam and preserves with preserves in it, with sugar in it to make it a little bit better. It starts to be distributed all over the state. Or sooner or later, that starts getting outside the state, and you got to really crank it up. Well, then all of a sudden, somebody else comes and says, hey, look, really, what you need to do is you need to get this, we need to turn it into a candy. You're like, a candy? How is that going to work? 
He goes, well, you can still take bits of it, okay? And it can go into the candy, and we're going to have to have a lot of preservatives, a lot of sugar, because it's got to have like a two-year shelf life, you know, at the local quickie store. Okay, well, let's try that. And all of a sudden, that explodes. You're in the next stage. You're getting further and further from the original thing, which was the strawberry. The next thing you know, a cereal maker comes and says, hey, look, we want to have your Frankenberry, oops, sorry, your berry, your berry cereal. We're going to have little bits of it that are dehydrated, but when people put milk in it, it'll start to get a little bit larger, but we want them from your fields so we can put your family name on it, which will help to sell it. Okay, let's try that. The next stage. Finally, someone comes to them and says, hey, look, we're the big soda maker. We make soda all over the world. What we really think is we want to come up with a strawberry soda. You know what we want to do? We want to have your family name on it. Wow, really? How do you get a strawberry into a soda? You don't. But we have a way of taking some chemical processes to get a chemical reaction. We look at what, what makes the taste of strawberry. But we want to enhance that and make it kind of hyper-real to really bring out a new, really enhanced version of strawberry taste. We want your name on this, and this is going to be worldwide. This will be a million times bigger than anything else you've ever done. So that grandson, who's now in his 40s and 50s, goes, you know what? That sounds like a good idea. We're going to make billions off of this. So you start making strawberry soda. The problem is that it now has no actual signifier that goes back to. It doesn't go back to the strawberry. It's something that tastes like it, that claims to be, that has a picture of it on the bottle, but it isn't. It's something completely different. It tastes like it. But here's the problem. If the first thing that you know of strawberry is drinking that strawberry soda, hmm, I like strawberry. Or do you just like strawberry taste that has no actual connection to an actual strawberry? So now it's present day. That young boy is now a grandfather himself. He looks at his grandson. Just as the sun's starting to go down, they just finished the family meal. He says, grandson, how about if you and I go out and pick a strawberry from the fields? The family strawberry. He goes, you know what, granddad? I love the family strawberry products. Boy, that would be cool to have the original strawberry. Yes, grandson, let's go. Yeah, I love that strawberry soda. They get in the pickup truck. They head out that same dusty road. As the sun is going down with the golden glow over all the groves, they get out of the truck. He bends down, picks that strawberry. He looks to his grandson. He says, grandson, now you're going to taste the best thing you've ever had in your life, an original family strawberry. He hands it to his grandson. His grandson takes a big bite. Yuck! What is this? What is this gross thing? Grandfather says, that's the family strawberry. That's the original strawberry. Well, I don't know what this is. 
I hate this. This is disgusting. I'll drink your soda. But I won't eat the real thing. That's where we're going. With everything. So it isn't just, you need to try the incredible meat. You need to try the new incredible chicken. You need to try the processed new thing that isn't, that is more sustainable. It's also reality. You don't need to be in reality and with real relationships with real people. You need to join the metaverse. You don't need to be in real church with a real community, with real believers and real doctrine. You need to watch online. Be part of our online community. As a matter of fact, you don't even need a real faith with a real God. See, because we're going to build a golden image. But we'll let you know, whenever you hear the pipe, or the harp, or the trigon or the lyre, that it's time to bow down. Because we're going to fake, make a fake simulacrum of what God was. And this is all the process, once again, of alchemy. Because the scientific method, the way that we understand things objectively, seeks to understand things as they are. What a strawberry tastes like. What a strawberry is. While alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. In other words, let's get you off the real and into the surreal. So it is what we tell you it is. To put it another way, the primary objective of science is truth. That of alchemy, operational success. That's what the fourth industrial revolution is. It's the use of reflexivity to get us there. Again, practiced by creating an atmosphere of transmission and acceptance of either true or false statements in order to fulfill manipulative function, powered by fertile fallacies, a lie that's wrapped in some kernel of truth that creates a dialectic, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You start with the thesis, provide its antithesis, and you say, well, we have to reconcile. Let's find a, let's find a synthesis. Problem, reaction, solution. We have a problem here that needs a solution. We have a reaction. Oh, it's terrible. Vulnerability. Remember when we talked about that the first day? But we have the solution. The two key words here are disrupt and dismantle. D&D, &D, not Dungeons and Dragons anymore, disrupt and dismantle. Disrupt what was in the previous meta-system. Dismantle the previous systems. Deconstruct the past. What was, what was real, what you knew to be objectively true. Because you want to reset your world. And you got to see that the pandemic represents a rare but narrow window of opportunity to reflect, reimagine, and reset our world to create this global simulacrum. That's what we're after. So everything that you thought you knew must be disrupted and dismantled to usher in the fourth industrial revolution. Everything must be disrupted and dismantled and brought to the ground in rubble.
razed to the ground. Buildings imploded like the casinos in Las Vegas that they leave in the ground. And why do you want to do that? Because you can build back better. Tear it all down. Disrupt it all. And then we'll build back better. That's why you're still in the process of everything, having everything torn down. That's why your grandkids can't get any baby formula. That's why you can't buy steak. But you have the incredible meat that's coming. It's made out of mealworms and soybeans. Well, the fourth industrial revolution, you're bringing in the concept of a global brain. The elimination of sovereign nations. Human employment is minimized. The rise of the creative class, because we just don't have enough jobs to go around anymore, because in the new fourth industrial revolution, human jobs are going to be eliminated. <clears throat> so like as James was referring to yesterday, so we can have it like how Karl Marx had it, right? Because he never had a real job in his life and just borrowed money from everybody. The end of analog policing, the rise of the surveillance state, a change of dietary consumption, the end of private ownership. Who's to say that that's your thing? The beginning of the circular economy, the internet of things. So when I say the internet of things, I mean that the internet is in everything and is everything. So whether it be the wallpaper that you have or the fabric on your walls or in your carpet, in your clothing and so forth, all that is part of the Internet of Things. It communicates, it gives data constantly. That it allows the new God made in the image of man, in the panopticon, can actually be able to understand and articulate what's going on with you and your life and everybody else that's on earth and can help to shape the ideas that you need to have. First, by directing you in those paths reflexively, and then eventually, because we'll all be infused, we'll all be imputed with the image of the new God made in human hands. Now, about five years ago, someone was explaining this loudly, and I was trying to refer people to it. Nobody would listen. So this is before Charlie Rose was banned, and this is a, I believe this was done in 2015 with Klaus Schwab. You now say that you want to talk about, in this year's uh, conference in January, mastering the fourth industrial revolution. When we look at the world today, we see governments and even business very much engaged in mastering the crisis of today, um, very much absorbed by crisis management. Right. But if you look into the future, there's so much going on in technology. It's a real revolution, and uh, our life, the pattern of governing societies will be so much affected with what's going on in research, in innovation, and we are not sufficiently prepared for it. Just look at the discussion on big data. Yeah. It shows how, how difficult it is to find the necessary rules, to find the necessary norms. And, and look at things like artificial intelligence. Exactly. And robots, look yeah. at things like um, gene editing. Exactly. You know, opening a whole new horizon. 
for medical science. And you see, the difference of this first uh, industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing. It changes you. If you take a genetic editing, right. uh, just as an example, it's you who exactly. are changed. Yeah. And of yeah. course, this has a big impact on yeah. your identity. Yeah. And offer certain kinds of possibilities that have to be careful about. You know, yeah. when you began to... When you began to do that kind of gene editing, some people worried that you were changing what it means to be human. That's the problem. And, yeah. uh, it, uh, of course, the new uh, Industrial Revolution offers us many opportunities, but it raises many fold questions on the ethical, but even legal uh, implications. And we have to be prepared for it. And that's what we want to do in Davos next year. So that was 2015, talking about what was going to be happening in 2016. 2016 was the big year of talking about the Great Reset into the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Big, probably the biggest Davos that they had so far. Everybody was there, Leonardo DiCaprio, all the, the celebrities and presidents and prime ministers and everybody else was there for that big rollout. And this was just after 2015 when they were releasing their 17 sustainability goals that they had as well with the United Nations. So the idea is, is that we were all going to transition to, into this. There was one little problem that happened, was that um, the person that they had wanted to be elected as president of the United States was not elected. And as well, you had something else that happened in the UK. You had this thing called Brexit, led by our friend Nigel Farage. So all of a sudden, you have the populist uprising of people saying, no, we don't want this. This is insanity. We want control of our own lives again. Well, that's populism. Oh, you mean that people want control of their lives? Yes. Not the experts. So again, what Klaus is talking about is disrupting what was in the previous metasystem, dismantle the previous systems, deconstruct the past. And as well, what you want to do is reconstruct in such a way that you can control what it means to be human or transhuman in the future. So the whole idea of what it means to be a human being is now up for grabs, literally. Now, let's talk about a few practical things. What actually happens that you can see this happening to you right now? And you hear all the excuses from mass media, from the White House and others about what's happening with our supply chain crisis, with the fact that you just don't have things on your shelves anymore. And of course, it's all still blamed on the health crisis, right? It's all because of that. Well, no, it's because you're trying to change our systems. So of course, who do you put in charge of our supply chain crisis? You put someone, get this, you put a young man who was mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who, whose father was the primary translator of Antonio Gramsci's manuscripts. He was the guy that was basically proclaiming culture Marxism. That's who you put in charge of our transportation systems and so forth in the United States, <clears throat> which of course he's not in charge of those. He's in charge of what doing what? Disrupting and dismantling. That's what they're doing. So, where th those of you that are, I, I mean, look, on the East Coast, where I'm from, I'm from Florida. I have an actual governor. And, 
where we have ships that are coming into our ports and being unloaded in the old-fashioned way, using people and cranes and all sorts of things, you have that occurring. But on the West Coast, where they have this newsome person, well, all of a sudden you've got ships upon ships upon ships upon ships that are all out at sea with tons of stuff on it, even things that are perishable. Oh, just can't take care of it, can't get it in. Why do you think they're doing that? Now, of course, this past year, and I, I first did this presentation last fall in 2021, some of this, is remember when they were saying this, this is in the fall of 2021, do your holiday shopping now, truck and driver shortage, vaccine mandate could worsen supply issue. Yes, sir. It's the truck and driver shortage. It's the vaccine mandate that could, well, what are you doing? You're creating the crisis yourself. That's what you're doing. It's because you're doing this. That's why you have shortages. That's why you don't have longshoremen that are working at the ports like they should be because, oh, you got to do this and you got to do that or else you can't, well, I'm not going to do that. Well, then don't come to work. Even the union's behind this. It's for your safety. Remember them saying that in the French Revolution? Oh, it's for your safety. That's how we had the Committee on Public Safety that was the one that was guillotining. Yeah, okay. Anyway. So, experts are advising shoppers to begin buying gifts early, as existing supply chain issues could be worsened by continued truck driver shortages as well as new vaccine mandates. The American Trucking Association estimates that this year's industry has about 80,000 less drivers than they need to meet the current demand, a shortage that predates COVID-19 but was exacerbated by the pandemic. Then, of course, you have independent truckers that are contractors and so forth that now can't afford to drive their trucks because diesel fuel is $1,000 a gallon. Sorry, hyperbolic. You know, it's $8 a gallon. So now it doesn't make sense. Well, we got to rise the prices on these things then. So then when you get your things that are being delivered by the diesel truck drivers that are going to basically swallow it and make $100 that week, the price is through the roof. Well, what has caused that? Is it just, well, it's just supply and demand? No. <laughs> Oh, if it was supply and demand, things would be very much different. So what is really going on? Let's go back to our logistics wheels. Supply chains and transport now, as opposed to the Great Reset. This is part of what's happening with the Great Reset, but this is what's happening. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to restructure global value chains. The top left corner. And you want to do supply risk and recovery. So supply risk, because you're going to a sustainable economy, a sustainable model. Logistics, property, and infrastructure. What does it mean to have property? Whose property is it? Should the idea of individual property rights even be considered anymore because we're all in this together? Logistics skill shortages. Who created the shortages? Did we have any shortages in 2018 and 2019 before all this happened? E-commerce and demand chains. Well, we're not going into a demand economy anymore, but the demand is simply that some people will get things, but it won't necessarily be because they want them or they can afford them. Digitization of supply chains. Well, what does that mean? You need to start thinking about this. So one thing that they'll say is that, well, the West, we really need to catch up to China. 
we need to catch up to what China's doing. So all of a sudden, China becomes the model that we must be. See, to beat China, we need to become China. But China, for the past 15 years, has been working on beating us because they knew that this was coming. And that's for my old clients and old friends, that we were part of this whole thing. And there's this thing called the Belt and Road Initiative. And the Belt and Road Initiative is over 100 nations that have joined in with the Memorial of Understanding with the Chinese Republic, the, the Chinese Communist Party, to be able to build supply chains. What happens is that China will come into, let's say, a very poor African nation. They'll say, look, your roads stink, you have lousy water, lousy trans, uh, transportation systems, lousy sanitation systems, and your airport is horrible. Who could even fly in here? We'll take care of all of it. We'll build it all new. All you got to do is let us run all of your digital data. And as well, give us some mineral rights and allow us to come in and bring in all of our businesses and give us some advantages to that. We'll pay for everything. Eh, don't worry about paying us back anytime soon, but just let us take care of this for you. And the nation goes, hey, sounds like a good deal. Let's do it. Well, now China's in charge. And this has been happening, what's called the Silk Road. It's the Belt and Road, Road Initiative, but it's also the Sea Route as well, as well the Spice Route. And that's where you see the Silk Road going through China and as well through the Middle East and heading all the way through to Europe. Then as well, you will see that happening underneath Southeast Asia and all around the Horn of Africa. That's how they've done it. So in essence, what they've done is they've taken Chinese sovereignty and they've extended it. This is why you were sleeping. Number one is Qingdao Port. The port of Qingdao is a seaport on the Yellow Sea in the vicinity of Qingdao, Shandong Province, China. Please notice that there are no drivers, there are no workers, there is no is one, one operating anything. It is one of the busiest anything. ports in the world. Don't you know that this container terminal of Qingdao Port has broken a world record set by itself? Thanks to China's technological breakthroughs, it is hard to beat Qingdao Port when it comes to port turnaround times. Imagine, it can handle an average of 39.74 containers in a single crane per hour, and nearly 1,800 containers can be handled in just 9 hours. Without one human being. Not one human in the process. So what have you got to overcome? You've got to overcome humans. You've got to overcome unions. You've got to overcome the old ways that we've done things. So what you want to do is first disrupt the system and say, oh, we've got a crisis on our hands. We've got a solution to that. Let's eliminate the human beings. No one has to worry about going to work and getting COVID ever again. Let's bring in technology. And I'm not opposed to it, technology, but don't lie to me. Let's have a discussion about this and how we're going to implement this without destroying our economy and having mothers that can't feed their children and having you to see that you can't get an iPhone or you can't get the thing that you need. 
Because we're getting out of that economy now. It's not about what you need, it's what you're allowed to have. So they are disrupting and dismantling the United States of America so that they can build back better into the fourth industrial revolution. And your participation is necessary. And one of the ways that they're going to end up breaking all of us, as we discussed yesterday, is through ESG, environmental, social, and governance. The environmental side of this is, look, there's an environmental crisis. We got to get to net zero by 2030, which means that your entire car fleets are going to have to change. As a matter of fact, that car that you own right now, that you bought in 2020, better not be thinking about keeping that when we get to 2030. Also, by 2030, we've got to make sure that we don't have any deaths on the roadway at all. That's what Pete Buttigieg said. Zero deaths by car accidents. Which means that the automobiles that are on the road need to be controlled through automation and through satellite. As opposed to be through you driving. You're the dangerous one if you're on the road now. Because all the rest of them are working perfectly, moving perfectly. And then through governance, you got to do what you're told to do. So now, how does this actually work within the evangelical church? Well, just as we talked about the other day, it's top-down, inside-out, and bottom-up. You're going to make a complete change. Well, how does that happen? How did we get here? How is it that all of a sudden the church is brought into this? And what I would say is that actually a lot of this didn't start necessarily in the Protestant Evangelical Church, even though if you go back about 100 years or so, you'd have Samuel Zane Batten, who was a Baptist, also with Walter Rauschenbusch and the Brotherhood of the Kingdom. You had him writing a book that was basically stating things that, hey, look, the entire world order has to change and needs to move in a socialist direction. And do you know what the name of the book was, by the way? It was written in 1919, just after World War I. Baptist! It's called the New World Order. Samuel Zane Batten. And what he laid out as a religious, religious prescription on how this could happen. Now, as well around the same time, you had other people that were in other faiths and other religions that had as well idealistic ideas of how things could be in the future. And all of them had that understanding that religion is a great part of what people do and how people function in life. It gives them meaning and purpose, right? You can't have a purposes, purposeless life. So there was a guy, a fellow by the name of Domhelder Kamara. I've been talking about this for about the past year now. Others have started to talk about it. Domhelder Kamara was from Recife in Brazil. Funny thing is, and James Lindsay will probably talk about this, Recife, Brazil, it's another guy that was kind of his contemporary, about 15, 20 years younger than he was, by the name of Paulo Ferreri. Kind of build the idea, idea of education. It's funny because they kind of had the same ideas to some extent. One was in education, and one was in catechesis over here for the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, so they were both in the same area and knew each other. But you have Dom Helder Camara who was first ordained as a priest in 1931 with direct authorization of the Holy See over his young age. And so a little bit about him. Really, uh, Kamara's father was an accountant. He was also a Freemason, by the way, which is kind of odd, being that he was Roman Catholic. And his mother taught school. 
She was an educator. But Kamara was really the first advocate for what is called liberation theology. And so Kamara was named Auxiliary Bishop of Rio de Janeiro by Pope Pius XII on March 3rd, 1952. Now, during his first years as a priest, he was a supporter and also part of the fascist socialist organization Integralismo. I'm not very good at Portuguese, please forgive me. Which, while being fascist and corporatist, held opposition between materialism, which is understood by him as the normal operation of natural laws guided by blind necessity and spiritualism, the belief in God, in the immortality of the soul, and in the conditioning of individual existence to superior eternal goals. So during his tenure, Don Helder Camara was informally called the Bishop of the Slums for his clear position on the side of the urban poor. With other clerics, he encouraged peasants to free themselves from their conventional fatalistic outlook by studying the Gospels in small groups and proposing the search for social change from their readings. He was active in the formation of the Brazilian Bishops' Conference in 1952 and served as its first general secretary until 1964. Now, he attended all four sessions of Vatican II, being active in helping to draft several positions. Now, as with most rebellious movements, Camara also, in his cohorts, put strong pressure on the youth of the church to rise up against authority. Camara also formed a woman's worker movement and sought ecclesial roles in the priesthood for women. Once again, he was all about liberation. And in 1965, he was part of what was called the Pact of the Catacombs. He's the one that led that. This is during the period of Vatican II. And the 1965 Pact of the Catacombs makes much of social justice and structures and concern for proletarian nations. It also promised to collaborate with global institutions. Here's a little bit from the Pact of the Catacombs, which was attended by many bishops, even some cardinals, in the catacombs underneath Rome. Conscious of the demands of justice and charity and their mutual relationship, we will seek to transform essential activities into social works based on justice and charity, which take into account all that this requires as a humble service of the competent public organs. We will do our utmost so that those responsible for our government and for our public services make and put into practice laws, structures, and social institutions required by justice and charity, equality, and the harmonic and holistic development of all men and women, and by this means, bring about the advent of another social order worthy of the sons and daughters of mankind and of God. It was the intent to completely change the role of the Roman Catholic Church and as well completely change the rest of civilization. Starts in small things, but this is what they did. 
Camara was known colloquially as the Red Bishop due to his condemnation of the anti-communist stance of the United States and his praise of Mao Zedong during the Cultural Revolution, which claimed millions of lives. Camara identified himself as a socialist and not a Marxist, and while disagreeing with Marxism, had Marxist sympathies. He stated, quote, my socialism is special. I've got a special socialism. It, it's a socialism that respects the human person and goes back to the Gospels. My socialism is justice. He said concerning Marx that while he disagreed with his conclusions, he agreed with his analysis of the capitalist society. Dom Helder Camara had a tremendous amount of influence on another person from Argentina that was part of this group, Jorge Mario Bergoglio. Pope Francis. And this is why you would have a healthy Pope Benedict, who was a radically conservative Pope, who came in and was basically trying to clean house in the Vatican after Pope John Paul II died. Why he ends up, why you have this massive scandal going on, right? What's going on in the priesthood and so forth? Lawsuits everywhere. The church is bankrupted. All of a sudden, he's flown out in a helicopter. Pope Francis comes in with his radical agenda, this social justice agenda, and all of a sudden, the debts disappear, and everybody's celebrating the pope. Elton John says, I really like this new pope. I might consider going to church again. All of a sudden, this pope is on the front stage, and all those problems that we had in the past are gone. Memory hold, done forever because it's time to move on. Just like getting concussions in the NFL. Remember when that was a thing? When the NFL was, was you know, really pushing against this whole social justice thing back in the early 2010s and 2000s, and then all of a sudden Colin Kaepernick takes a knee, all those concussions go away. It's not a problem anymore. Same thing, guys. So, yeah, Dom Helder had a tremendous impact on another young man in the early 1970s, a man who would soon be gathering both world leaders and corporate leaders to disrupt and dismantle the world, to reset civilization. This young man was moved so much by this experience when he was asked, really, what was the turning point? What was the thing that gave him the vision for what he'd be doing for the next 50 years of how he could bring this change to mankind? Oh, he thought of Dom Helder Kamara. That was the guy that really got it right. Bringing in this idea of faith, of religion, of how we could make a religion for the poor, of how we could kind of synthesize things both from a corporatist structure as well as with a socialist structure, as well as with care for the environment, as well as kind of a social justice move at the same time. This guy, Kamara, boy, did he have it. Why don't we go ahead and hear from that young man himself? I, I give you one example, which for me was probably a crucial moment in my life. I traveled for the first time uh, to Brazil. I met a priest uh, who was known at that time as the priest of the poor people. Hmm. Uh, his name was Don Elder Camara. And he brought me to the favelas of uh, Recife, and I was so shocked 
And I said, I have to invite this bishop to Davos mm. to tell the people what poverty is. So I invited him to, to, to the annual meeting in Davos. But then when I came back in Switzerland, I found out that actually he was forbidden at that time Ooh. to speak in Switzerland because he was considered to be a communist. And I said, this is for me a test. But then I noticed that many companies told me, if you invite this person who is so much against business, we will not come to Davos anymore. And that's where I had to stand to my values. Yeah. Even at the risk that I would have to give up uh, the World Economic Forum. Wow. Um, but it went very well. Uh, I have to say, um, the audience in Davos listened to him. Dom Helder Camara. So the same guy that influenced the Pope of today, Pope Francis, was the guy that heavily influenced, even to the point of quitting, Klaus Schwab. And now you'd understand why one of the very important things for the World Economic Forum is the role of religion. Because you have to think about faith and global development. You have to think about how religion has an impact on social movements. You have to understand the role that religion plays with conflict and peace building. You have to understand how religion really has an influence in ethics and law. And as well, you have to understand how religion and how we can make a new religion of our own making has an influence on gender norms and roles. The role of faith in systemic global challenges from the World Economic Forum. Now you might think that this is dry and sciencey with just Harvard professors from Yale and, and from Princeton and from other places that, you know, they're all part of the Jesus seminar, right? probably have some very fringe Roman Catholic professors that are there that have no real faith in God that are just looking at things. No, 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 no. And the global challenges and the solutions that are here, you know, as opposed to they want to start looking at them being as solutions to providers of health care, charitable trust, emergency responses, religious communities engaged in aid work, prevention, education, and advocacy. They want their perspectives and views on sexual reproduction and human rights, women's rights, the views of the human body, concepts of sin, guilt, and forgiveness. You see, you need to take all of these concepts, and we have to help the religions be the ones that take our goofy, twisted, dystopian concepts and have the religions of the world be the vehicle by which we deliver these things. We need to have the trusted faiths and religions of Roman Catholics, of Protestants, of Muslims, of Buddhists be the ones that deliver our message. The ones with the priestly collars. The ones with the Brooks Brothers ties. The ones with the right kind of headgear that are on. Not the guy with the goofy German accent. But you need to have the ones that are real. That can deliver that message and deliver that formula that Dom Helder Kamara first brought to me that changed the way that I appear on things. 
My involvement in this, the faith factor in employment skills and human capital, which is the same document, by the way. This was created by Neil Nielsen, chairman of Lippo Education Initiatives, Lippo Group, Indonesia. James Riotti, Stephen Riotti, people that I knew quite well. James Riotti, and this will probably get a lot of people upset, who has been providing a lot of the revenue into places like Reformed Theological Seminary. The one has been pushing a lot of these initiatives. So, in this though, you say, okay, that's obscure. I see that you're trying to make some connections there, Mike, but it really doesn't look, we're evangelicals. I just go to church and I'm Bible believing. I don't need to mess with any of this, really. How many of you did, back 20 years ago, the 40 days of purpose? for Rick Warren and so forth. Because he's somebody you could trust, right? Southern Baptist, big churches. I mean, he wouldn't get involved with all this stuff, would he? He wouldn't go to Davos with the concepts of Davos being created by guys like Schwab, with the religious influence on how to basically create world religions and move world religions into a vehicle that could deliver this Marxist message he wouldn't get involved with all that, would he? This is from 2008, I believe, so the video's a little bit blurry. My faith in the modern world as well, because I think this is, in a, in a sense, quite an important thing, because there'll be a lot of... By, by the way, let me go back, sorry. Um, this is, you have Tony Blair, former prime minister, introducing him. He's up there with the Roman Catholic Cardinal. He's up there with a, with a Muslim uh, Imam, he's up there with other religions of the world, explaining how if you really want to do this right, you got to trust the evangelicals. We're the ones that got this right. My faith in the modern world as well, because I think this is in a in a sense quite an important thing, because there'll be a lot of people who would say, uh, yeah, okay, we agree with all these values, but why faith? Is that a softball question or what? <laughs> a, I know that you can handle anything, so I'm going to do that. Could you bring up the volume just to First, I applaud Davos for having this session. And I applaud you for coming to it. It really says more about you than it does about us. If you are a global business leader, you need to understand that the future of the world is not secularism. It is religious pluralism. You may not like that, but you're going to have to deal with it. The world is becoming more religious, not less. The myth that as education rises, religion would go down, is that literally a myth? And if you happen to be in a country where either houses of worship are not strong, you have no idea of the vitality of faith around the world and see how influential it really is. There are major problems on our planet. I call them the global giants. They affect not millions of people, but billions of people. Pandemic diseases, extreme poverty, illiteracy, corruption, global warming, spiritual emptiness. We cannot solve these problems without involving people of faith and their religious institutions. That's you. It isn't going to happen any other way. On this planet, there are about 20 million Jews. There are about 600 million Buddhists. There are about 800 million Hindus. There are over 1 billion Muslims. And there are 2.3 billion Christians. 
If you take people of faith out of the equation, you've ruled out five-sixths of the world. And if we only leave it up to secular people to solve these major problems, it isn't going to happen. Now, I've been coming to Davos for some time, and we always talk about partnerships. And I'm in favor of partnerships, but we've been missing the third leg of the stool. When we talk about partnerships at Davos, we basically talk about public and private, or public being government and non-government organizations, and private being the for-profit organizations. A one-legged stool will fall over, and a two-legged stool will fall over. You have to have three legs. And the third leg of the stool are the people representing faiths on this stage and others. It is the faith component. Government has a role that only government can do. Profit has a role that only profit can do. And churches and mosques and synagogues and temples have a role that only they can do. We'll get past that. I'm going to get past these things. Do you understand what's happening now? It's a three-legged stool. Public, private is fascism. It's corporatism. Public-private partnerships. But you got to have that third leg, too. You got to have the religions. So ministries, and as he said, and I've been coming to Davos for a number of years, and if you look up the Council on Foreign Relations, Google it, put in the names like Richard Land, Council, oh, the former head of the ERLC, Council on Foreign Relations, Ed Stetzer, the former head of Lifeway and the, who was running Christianity Today. Oh, there he is. When you take a look at Megan Basham's article that she did about the collaboration between Francis Collins, Anthony Fauci, Tim Keller, as well as Ed Stetzer and others that were all working to try to create the response of churches to COVID-19, you can't miss what's actually going on because what we're doing is we're in the midst of a transition from original sin original sin that we understand biblically from what the bible says that we're all born in sin well it needs to be more centered to understanding that as just being white cisgendered males that's the original sin as opposed to being born again you have an awakening you become woke sanctification well as opposed to being sanctified in the Holy Spirit, you need to become an ally. You need to do your anti-racism work like Ibram X. Kendi wants you to. For redemption, well, redemption is never, redemption's never accomplish, accomplished. This goes on forever. You have to do the work. As opposed to the reformer Martin Luther, who brought the understanding of justification by faith alone. No, we can't be focusing in on that. We need to look at the one who was the liberator, Martin Luther King. That's our reformer. As opposed to the canon of scripture, the canon of woke. That's why you have Robin DiAngelo that needs to be someone that is pushed. Jamar Tisby that needs to be pushed. As opposed to the Inquisition now that the Roman church applied to the, to the, to the Protestants during that time of persecution, you need to have the Thinquisition. We need to make sure that we are thinking the right thoughts. We need to worship the right way that the God made of human hands, the God that we have made in our image for our new world, for our new revolution, 
the doctrines that that God would have us follow. Because it isn't just a question of us just doing the right thing that we're prescribed to from the government. Oh no, there's virtue attached to this now. It is a matter of faith. Do you want to get right with God, friend? Remember what Governor Kathy Hochul had said to us? If you want to get right with God, you will take the magical mystery juice. Oh, I know. Many of you out there are faithful, but you have friends that are not. But you need to bring them the gospel of the fourth industrial revolution. That's where we're going. That's what this is about. And it might sound crazy. It might sound dystopian and science fiction-like. That's why I tried to provide the quotes so you can hear it from their own words, just like I heard it from them myself years ago. There is no denying what's going on. This is what they're doing. And the thing that, that our adversaries don't like about myself or James Lindsay is because we'll just come and say, oh, I know what you're doing. What you're doing is this, this, and this. Because you're trying to create this reaction from people. Because you're trying to still move them into this position. Oh, it just needs to stop. It needs to end. We need to end the religion of Davos. This idea of the dialectic spiraling us into the next 50 years of the Marxist dream of utopia. It needs to end, and it needs to end first. And what you can help us with is ending it in the church. How many of you come from churches to maybe this church or others where you had some of your pastors taken to Rome to go spend time with the Roman Catholic Church about how we can get together and start doing things? Do you understand now why they were doing that? What, what relationship do we have with Rome now? None. The funny thing is you have a lot of Roman Catholic priests are saying, you know what, I'm checking out of this thing. I don't want any part of this. It has nothing to do with what I was doing anything with. So you have Roman Catholics and Roman Catholic priests that are saying, this whole idea of Petrine authority, there's some issues there with this authority thing. We have some open opportunities as well to share the gospel, and as well to bring people on a path to objective truth. Because, as Rick said, you've got a two-legged stool. You can't do this without religion. That's why we're doing a conference called The Theology of Marxism. Thank you so much. We're going to take a five-minute break, and Dr. Lindsay will be up here in just a moment. <laughs>